So if we were all gathered in the sanctuary together this morning, I'd open the sermon with a trivia question and ask you all to jump in with your answers. And even though we're not together in person, I'm going to ask you anyway. And take a moment, respond in the Facebook comments, or just yell out the answer wherever you're sitting. And here's the question. What is the first commandment that God gives to the Israelite people? The very first commandment. I should have asked Shandor to play the Jeopardy theme. So if you answered that the first commandment is when the Lord says to have no other gods before him, you are almost right. That is the first of the Ten Commandments. But even before Moses receives the two tablets, long before then actually, God gives the Israelite people their very first commandment, which was to observe the Passover every year and to tell the story once more of God's liberating love. Which is a really interesting thing when you think about it. Even before we were given laws that said not to kill or steal or have idols, to, um, and our laws about keeping the Sabbath, God's people were commanded to remember the moment of their salvation and to come back to that moment year after year. Our very first commandment as a people shaped time itself around God and the story of God's redemptive love. Now many creatures have a sense of time, whether it's plants that bloom at a particular season, birds that migrate, mammals hibernating. But as far as we know, for the majority of creation, time is a function of DNA-fueled instinct. The change of season creates a drive to store or to sleep, to fly north or south, to seek a safe place to bear young. But somewhere between 70,000 and 30,000 years ago, anthropologists believe that Homo sapiens, our particular brand of primate, began conceiving of time not only as seasonal shifts that drive us to act a particular way, but rather time as shaped by the stories that orient our lives. It's the reason that we think of fall not primarily as the time when nutrient-rich soil leaves drop into the soil and fertilize it for spring growth, but as rich with the scent of crisp white notebooks and long, freshly sharpened pencils. It's a season of education, of new friendships and minds hungry to learn. We listen on our morning commutes for the sounds of school children lined up at the bus stop. And there's a sense of joy or maybe of dread of family celebrations approaching in the months ahead. We mark our milestones, births and deaths, weddings and graduations, with rituals and ceremonies. Most often, rituals that bring people together who know each other very well. Our sense of time and really who we are is shaped by practices and stories that surround them. So that we're in, when we are in a situation where rituals have to change drastically, it can feel like time itself has shifted and it can be difficult to get our bearings. Which is a really roundabout way of saying this is a very strange kickoff Sunday. Even if you were never part of this church or of any church, if I say kickoff Sunday, you could probably summon up a picture in your mind of what something like that might look like. A big choir, friends greeting one another, kids who have sprouted up over the past few months tumbling down the center aisle for the children's message. 
There's a sense of coming home, back after our warm weather wanderings, to remember again who we are and whose we are, and to do that in the company of our community. And so I'll be the first to say that while I am deeply grateful to have the ability to worship virtually and a staff who are doing their absolute best to make this day feel familiar and celebratory, there's a part of me this morning that's simply grieving our separation. This whole pandemic has given me an entirely new appreciation for the gift of incarnation. God knew that we needed to hug and touch and see one another to have a sense of the divine. But the other thing about disruption is that it causes us to look at rituals in new ways and create space to brush aside some of the dust of ages to give fresh insights. And so this year, as we celebrate this kickoff Sunday without all its usual trappings, we have a chance to look again at what this day is marking and the invitations that underlie it. And to get a sense of what this invitation might be, we can go back to scripture and look at how our biblical ancestors marked time. Was there an ancient Israelite version of kickoff? And today's first reading shows that delightfully there was and that it's something that they called jubilee. The word jubilee comes from the Hebrew word for trumpet, which signals the start of the new year. But Jubilee wasn't just a celebration, it was a call to a very particular kind of action. The ancient Israelites were people who, like us, married and had children, started businesses, bought and sold, fell into debt or wealth, negotiated with neighbors at home and abroad. And like us, they saw that as the years went on, some people grew very wealthy and others grew very poor. Some kept slaves and others became slaves. Some had plenty, while others were hungry. But at the Jubilee year, which was to happen at regular intervals of seven and then 50 years, all of this paused. Wealthy farmers lived off their stores, letting the poor eat from their fields. Slaves were freed and returned to their families. The balance sheets were reordered and wealth redistributed. Those who had means cared for the destitute. Now, if there are any students of philosophy out there, you might be familiar with the great 20th century thinker, John Rawls. Rawls argued that a society can truly call itself just if you could pause everyone midstream and switch them around so that CEOs became taxi drivers and factory workers became accountants. You could live in any school district, be born into any race, religion, or physical ability. And everyone drew their random straw and said, oh yeah, I could live well in this life. I could feed my family, I could work decent hours for fair wages, and have a suitable safety net if something unpredictable should befall me. And I think Rawls, in his own way, was arguing for something like the biblical jubilee. Now over the summer, we've all seen jubilee signs, as we've realized again that our most underpaid and undervalued professions are the ones that are truly essential for the maintenance of life. We've seen jubilee signs when, we've, when people have protested against two different rules of law depending on your skin tone. We've seen jubilee signs as our air and water have cleared with the pause in transportation and people have reoriented to spend more time with family and less at work. But it takes a willingness on our parts to make these whispers of jubilee an actual reorientation of our structures and priorities. 
Now, it's always a little dicey for the pastor to spiritualize what is made concrete in the Bible. I don't think when God was giving Israelites directives about freeing captives or caring for immigrants or redistributing wealth that it was intended to be simply a shift in attitude. I can't actually say that I love a person if I don't seek their well-being. And it begs the question of what you see needing reorienting this year. What concrete changes do you want to work for in the world, in your community, and in your personal life? What whispers of jubilee need to be tended to and strengthened, and what part will you play in that? At the same time, what God is doing here isn't just a simple redistribution of goods and of roles. Underlying that redistribution is a total trust in God's sovereignty and our identity of children of God which makes small any of our other identities. Not long ago, I read an article about how doctors can slip into having their role as physicians overshadow any other identity in their lives, what some might call a total calling. Doctors may interpret their history in light of their journeys to become a healer, shape their current relationships around being a physician, see their possessions as totems to hard work, grit, and intelligence, and we find as well that if that role of being a doctor is ever taken away during, due to age or disability, their sense of who they are at their core could be deeply shaken. And of course, this isn't limited to doctors. I think it's all too easy to confuse what we do or what we have with who we are. I picture Moses presenting the Jubilee commandments to the Israelites and what their reactions might have been. Hey, I earned that field. I'm owed that debt. I worked hard to pass that investment down to my kids. But God is saying, you are not at your core a slave, and you are not at your core a slave owner. You are not an intrinsically successful person or an intrinsically unsuccessful one. What if none of who we are is ours, and if none of what we have is ours, but we are only stewards of what belongs to God? These are labels, they're external markers, they're not the truth of who we are. And once in a while we need a big reminder, a kick in the you-know-what, if not a kick-off, that who we are is different than the trivial names and identities that we claim for ourselves. We need a jubilee. Now it's not, all not at all surprising that the jubilee didn't set settle human failings and injustices once and for all. The Bible and human history is one long story of people making variations on the same mistake again and again and again. By the time Paul was writing his letter to the Romans, the conversation was focused not so much on redistributing wealth and roles, but on the ways that people of God treat one another, and more importantly, how the ways that we treat one another reveal what we believe about God. The early Christians came from all different backgrounds, and they brought to the church their customs, their prejudices, and their commitments. Some felt it was fine to eat meat sacrificed to Roman idols as long as you didn't believe in the idols themselves. Some observed the Sabbath on a Saturday, others on a Sunday. And while I have no doubt that their battles were bitter, the weight of years honestly makes them seem a little petty to me. Just the way I predict our squabbles over church practice will seem awfully silly to future generations. 
But what if it's not just bickering over matters of opinion, but over something that we do consider core to who we are? I think about all of those yard signs going up as the election approaches, and I don't imagine that anyone who is placing one of those signs thinks that the in issues that they're advocating for is, are just a matter of opinion. I'd wager that they'd all say that there are profound issues at stake, issues that are of ultimate significance to our democracy and our society. And I'd wager that when we see signs that advocate for our candidate or for the other candidate, we're probably making some assumptions about the person who put up that sign. And maybe even rehearsing the arguments we'd make in our heads if they happened to walk out to their mailbox at the exact moment our car approached. And in this context, Paul's admonition about quarreling might seem naive and even dangerous. Not speaking up against something that's wrong means participating in it, right? For what it's worth, I think Paul was not saying that we shouldn't disagree with our neighbors or that we shouldn't fight for things that we believe to be in line with God's teachings. And if he was arguing for that, he was a pretty poor example because he argued all the time. He was a really passionate spokesman for the things that he believed in, about the way that he thought that the world should run under Christ's rule. But Paul knew about himself and about us that we are fallible creatures. Our opinions and our commitments should not be confused with God's truth. As one pastor said, ultimately, I'm not called to defend my beliefs. I'm called to love my neighbor. In his letter to the Romans, Paul is reorienting us, turning us back to who we are. Not ultimately Jews or Greeks, educated people or peasants, not members of a political party or spokespeople for a set of ideals. Of course, we may be all of those things in some way, but first, we are children of God, called to love other children of God with all of our hearts and our minds and our strength. But of course, we know that loving someone and agreeing with them are two very different things. We don't always agree with those we love. And in, fa and in fact, it is those we're closest to who are often the ones that we feel the greatest internal pressure to get to align with our particular positions. I once attended a, a gathering with a very, very well-known politician who was speaking to a group of clergy, and this politician boasted that he didn't love his enemies. In fact, he hated them. And many of the clergy in attendance laughed and nodded because I think that they recognized that in this boast, it was reflected our human tendency to demonize those we disagree with. But actually, this demonizing betrays a huge lack of trust in the God who commands us to love in Christ's name. Love is, after all, not a conditional commandment, meant to last only until we find ourselves on opposite sides of the fence. Love is the way that we bridge the gap. And paradoxically, being present to others in love is the best way to get them to shift their beliefs, any beliefs that may not be rooted in healthy soil. As prophetic changemakers have preached throughout the ages, we get on the same page with others, not by compromising deeply held views and commitments, but by sharing what we believe with humility, without contempt, and with an unyielding desire to connect and to understand. As humans, we need a jubilee. We need to be invited back again and again and again to love. Globally and as a nation, as a congregation, we are in a historic time of change. 
God willing, not too long from now, we'll welcome an interim pastor who will shepherd us through the work of reorienting our congregation into the next chapter of our lives together. But true change, lasting change, can't be outsourced to others. We must all have a part in it, in our own ways. So I ask, how will you reorient yourself this year? Or put better, how will you accept God's invitation to allow yourself to be reoriented? Maybe it will be getting involved in something in this congregation that you haven't tried before, answering that call that you've been struggling to silence because it seems like you just don't have enough time or it's too tough. Maybe it's approaching the things that you're already doing with a new awareness for the ways that your work is part of God's. Maybe it's disciplining ourselves to see our triumphs and our failures not as who we are, but simply as a part of what makes us human, and holding these human identities more lightly so that we can live more fully into who we are as children of God. As we come home spiritually, if not physically, this kickoff Sunday, I wonder about the ways that you will live out your identity as God's beloved this year and the many opportunities that each of us will have to be faithful, curious, and humble stewards of all the gifts that we've been given. In God's name we ask. Amen.